If you have your Bibles, let's uh, open to Luke chapter 24, and let's read once more this passage we've read several times, just to refresh our minds and our hearts. Just after the resurrection of Jesus, we're about to celebrate here in just a few short weeks in Easter. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he was talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. As I've heard this passage read in chapel throughout the past academic year, I've often wondered two things. Number one, why are the disciples kept from recognizing Jesus. What good could that do other than make for a nice story? It's like we're having a nice story at their expense. And two, why in the blazes does Jesus disappear as soon as they recognize him? What is up with that? Maybe you've had those questions. Maybe you've had other questions too. I have had other questions for a longer time that are like cousins to those How do I relate to Jesus when I can't see him in the room, when I can't touch him, when I can't interact with him like all the other people that I interact with in my life? That's a question my daughter is asking right now. Basically, how do I pray? And what do I do when it seems like God is not there? When my faith feels like a faintly remembered dream, especially when I need him or others that I love need him, why does God seem so distant and hard to recognize? How do I recognize him? Have you ever had those questions? If you've read the Gospels, 
you know that Jesus is a tricky teacher. He often teaches in riddles and parables and ambiguous sayings that leave you wanting more, longing to follow him more, to find out what he means. In the story we just read, Jesus is at it again. That's what he's doing. He's ironically revealing himself by meeting with these disciples while they're discouraged, talking to them along the way, but he's not telling them directly who he is. They're kept from recognizing him. As soon as they do recognize him, he disappears. As you all know, in this year's series, we've been imagining what it was that Jesus said to these disciples on the road to Emmaus as he explained to them this new way of reading the Scriptures in light of who he is, the Messiah. This morning, I've chosen to focus on one of Jesus' favorite names for himself, the Son of Man. This title, the Son of Man, is it's another example of the way that Jesus teaches others by revealing and concealing himself at the same time. The name, the Son of Man, is a riddle that he's inviting us to solve and to figure out. It's one that he probably would have explained again to Cleopas and his friend. And forgive my Arkansan pronunciation of Cleopas. We're going to go with a southern pronunciation. Cleopas, okay? (laughs) Not Cleopas or whatever you might say in Greek. Cleopas and what's his name? Cleopas and what's his name? My hope is that thinking together about this title, the Son of Man, and how Jesus uses it, is going to help us clue into what Jesus is up to on the road to Emmaus. All right, that's my hope. And potentially, what is Jesus up to as the Son of Man in our own lives? That's where we're headed. So the Son of Man was not an established title that everyone in the ancient world would know. They wouldn't recognize. Rather, it was something that probably came from Jesus' own creative mind as a way to express to others who he was in this revealing and concealing kind of way. We know that when he would use the phrase, things like this happened. When he would use the phrase, people didn't know what he was talking about. As we read in John 12, 34 and 36, Uh, Here's this passage. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? You're talking about like he's dying? How is the Son of Man dying? And by the way, who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Classic response from Jesus. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Those questioning Jesus here have an understanding of the Messiah that doesn't fit Jesus. People were thrown off balance when they heard him using this title, the Son of Man. Notice how Jesus is totally unconcerned to answer their question, who is this Son of Man? He's thinking, probably, Okay, that hook worked. Instead, he calls them to trust him, and then he walks away. There's no Old Testament passage that is precisely mapped on to Jesus' habit of calling himself the Son of Man. The difference is that Jesus' usage adds the the to the beginning, the Son of Man. That's what's throwing people off. That's what's putting people out of balance. It's something that never quite happens in the Old Testament. But surely, though, it was from reading 
and memorizing and praying the scriptures, which for Jesus was the Old Testament, that this habit arose in Jesus, that he began to think, this is what God is leading me to call myself. So there's a few ways in the Old Testament in which the expression son of man, without the the, son of man, appears in the Old Testament. In Psalm 8, son of man, let's all say this in Hebrew, ben adam, ben adam, that's what son of man is in Hebrew. It's just another way of saying human being. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings, ben adam, that you care for them. See the same thing in Job, same thing in Numbers. All throughout, often it's a, in this kind of parallel formulation. All the way through the book of Ezekiel, God's favorite name for the prophet Ezekiel is son of man. Not the son of man, just son of man. In this context, it's almost like another way of saying mortal one. Go and prophesy this, this, or that. Or stand up so that I can speak to you. And the Holy Spirit helps him stand up. The prophet Daniel is called the same name, son of man. Not the son of man, but just son of man by Gabriel. Um, as Gabriel's helping him with one of his visions. And uh, if you've read some of Daniel's visions, you know he needs help. And then there's another... And by, the, by the way, let's think about Daniel for a second, because there's another relatively unique usage in Daniel chapter 7, uh, in which Daniel has this vision of a heavenly figure coming on the clouds to God, who's sitting on his heavenly throne. All right, let's, I'm going to read an extended passage of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 here, just so you can get a sense of this vision if you haven't read it recently. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. And I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there was before me, there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear, and it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird, and this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And when I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn. This is wild vision. A little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. This is a judgment scene. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. And there's our usage of this word, this phrase, 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is an important passage probably for, for uh, very likely for Jesus trying to understand what is he getting at by calling himself the Son of Man. In this passage, this, this is an essentially a vision of the great end, capital E. That's what this vision is all about. It's about the great end, the end of all things. When God, as judge, the Ancient of Days, finally brings ultimate justice, judging all creation, restoring all things. On our first reading of this passage, this one like a son of man sounds like a singular human person or at least like a human person, right? Like a son of man. But it also sounds like a heavenly figure. He's coming on the clouds. He's riding on the clouds. He's coming to God. Interestingly, though, in the passage that immediately follows this passage that we just read, there's an interpretation given of this vision. Thank goodness. Daniel learns that the one like a son of man functions like a visual representation of the people of Israel. Look at these verses in Daniel 7, 15, just the Next couple. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me, and I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he gave me, uh, so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. The holy people of the Most High will possess the kingdom. They are the Son of Man. The Son of Man, the one like a Son of Man, and the people, God's holy people, are almost one and the same. All right? When Jesus uses the Son of Man, it's like we've, like we've said, like the passage that Mark, Mark showed us before, it's often an indirect reference to himself. All right? So we get, uh, in, when he's healing the man uh, who's paralyzed, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on and was, went home praying, praising God. We know this has to be Jesus referring to himself because he was the guy who just claimed to forgive this paralyzed man in the story, right? Sometimes, here, here's another example. Sometimes it gets a little bit more confusing. In Luke 9, and I may have advanced a couple of slides here. I'll try once more. There we are. Whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, again, in a judgment context, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. This is slightly confusing because it seems like Jesus is talking about two different people. He's talking about himself and then this judgment figure, Son of Man coming in glory. How do we know who's who? How do we know both? Of course, looking at all these passages together within the whole story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we know Jesus right here is still referring to himself. He is this Son of Man coming in judgment. But for his disciples before the resurrection, it wasn't as clear as it could have been. And Jesus is deliberately creating this confusion by calling himself the Son of Man. Again, people didn't get it. He intentionally is speaking indirectly in riddles 
just like he purposefully keeps Cleopas and his friend from recognizing him. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he call himself the Son of Man if people didn't get it? Just be glad that your Bible professors aren't so tricky, although maybe we are in our own ways. I think the simplest answer for why, why does he use this title that people don't get as soon as he says it? The simplest answer is that Jesus himself actually did think of himself as the fulfillment of this end times figure. He is the cosmic Lord, the cosmic reigning king given authority by God after judgment. He's the one who inherits God's kingdom, the one in whose God's reign lasts forever, the representative of all of God's holy people. That's who Jesus is. That's who he thought himself to be. But he chose to be indirect because he knew that the way in which God's kingdom would come was through his shameful death and his surprising resurrection. That's why he chose to be indirect. This means of bringing the kingdom, that's not spelled out in Daniel. Quite the opposite. The one like a son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven after God has laid waste to all the human kingdoms of the earth. That's what people are expecting. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, the human being, the mortal one, a title that people would not get so that he is in the driver's seat about who he is, not other people's expectations, not other people's wishes, not other people's biblical study, apart from his teaching and apart from spending time with him. It's Jesus who defines who this one like a son of man is in Daniel 7, not the other way around. Does that make sense? It's Jesus, uh, for example, who defines what it means to be truly human. It's just like when Jesus says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, right? You remember that saying? Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. That means that the Sabbath is not Lord over him, nor are other people's uh, interpretations of what the Sabbath is and how it should be observed. He is Lord of the Sabbath instead. So using this title, Jesus is teaching his disciples to see him who looks like an ordinary man walking amongst them, building this friendship, performing miracles as the cosmic king, Lord of the universe, Son of Man. That's why he's doing it. Why does Jesus use the Son of Man for himself, this title, even though people didn't quite get it? Jesus is drawing his disciples to trust him, even when they couldn't fully understand him. And as they trusted him, their understanding of him was transformed, and they themselves were transformed. I think that's why he did it. So now poor Cleopas and his friend have been waiting for a long time while the New Testament professor rattles on about the Son of Man. And they're wondering still, well, okay, great. That's why he did the Son of Man thing, maybe. But why is Jesus keeping himself from us? Why did he choose to not show himself immediately when he saw that we were sad and downcast and completely believing uh, something that wasn't true? Well, I think the same thing is happening here. The same thing is happening on the Emmaus Road. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus was seeking to transform his disciples by showing him that he is truly present when they think he's absent. Jesus is seeking to transform his disciples by showing them that he is truly present with them when they think that he is absent, when their experience tells them that he's gone. In the story, we see Cleopas and his friend, they're devastated, right? The dreams of who Jesus could be were crucified, buried with him as he was shamefully executed as a criminal. Luke emphasizes their downhearted fixation on this whole thing. 
we, as we're reading the story, we read more of their words spelling out why they're sad than we do reading Jesus' own words telling them all about the scriptures. And we wish it was the other way around, right? I think that's Luke's clue for us to pay attention to, pay attention to how their thinking and their feeling shifted in the story. I'm fascinated especially by the end of the story. Okay? When they finally recognize Jesus, then he disappears. What is the immediate effect of that? What does the text, what does the text say happens as soon as he disappears? And they, they recognize him and he disappears. It says, Then their eyes were opened, they recognized him when he broke the bread, and they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's fascinating to me. That's their immediate response when he disappears. They recognize him. He disappears. He's absent again. And now they're left with this burning heart, this sensation, this, this passion in them. They, they think about this. They think, imagine the conversation that goes on between Cleopas and his friend. They say, you know, oh, I knew it. I knew that this was the one. I knew that it was Jesus. I don't know. I, I just loved this guy. He was some random stranger. Uh, he didn't look like much. I didn't know why I was so interested in this guy, but I just couldn't stop listening to him. I knew there was something in me that I knew it was Jesus. Cleopas, you know how, how much I can't stand the book of Ezekiel. I fall asleep every time it's read. But when he was talking about Ezekiel, it was amazing. It was, my, uh, this is unbelievable. I knew it was Jesus. It had to be Jesus. My heart was bursting with joy and love for this man. I just want to go and tell others about what happened. The disciples' understanding of Jesus was certainly transformed, right? They recognized he's not, al- he's not dead. He's alive. His teaching is true. He's re- they're reminded again the scriptures point to Jesus' death and resurrection. He's truly with them and he cares for them. All these things show these disciples who Jesus really is. This isn't just some guy that they've been with, some somebody off the street. This is the somebody, the Messiah, the Son of Man the judge of the universe. He's the true one, even though he died a shameful death. This is amazing. That's what they're realizing. But when they're recognizing Jesus, they're also being shown who they are. Okay? This moment of recognition at the meal leaves this taste of longing for God at the core of their being. It awakens their faith and it puts to flight their sadness and their doubt, even now in his absence. They're learning how to relate to Jesus when they don't see him. That's what, that's what they're being given. They recognize that their hearts want this truth, this reality that they just encountered in Scripture and in their experience. They want it. They want to search the Scriptures to satisfy their longing again. They want to follow Jesus to believe in him, to be with him, to obey him, to love him, to participate in his kingdom mission. This is their real desire. They didn't know that they had, they thought it was all lost. They didn't, were trying to figure out what they were going to do for the rest of their lives. It's not just wishful thinking either. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just something drummed up to put on a show or to hope beyond hope that it could be true. It's real. And this burning in their hearts is a gift from God. It's at the same time fully their own as well. It's living in their hearts. It's like a compass pointing them back to God that they didn't have before. 
That's the gift that Jesus is giving them when he meets them on the road to Emmaus. They can now see that the sadness and doubt and pessimism and worry that they experienced before was not rooted in reality beyond themselves. They can identify those emotions for what they are, just clouds dissipating before the sunrise. Because Jesus chose to be deliberately indirect to conceal himself, now his disciples know how to relate to him when it seems like he's absent. Now they know that this gift of passion and love for Jesus is itself evidence of his presence with them, even when it seems like he's gone, even when they no longer see him. You see how that works? This is probably why Jesus disappears after they recognize him as well. By disappearing, Jesus isn't abandoning them. He's not playing tricks on them, although maybe it would be a funny practical joke to talk about. He's teaching them to relate to them in a new way. Hey, guys, remember when I disappeared on y'all? Sorry, couldn't resist. He's teaching them to relate to him in a new way, in a way that, when he, that he's present with them even though they can't see him. He's teaching them that even when they can't see him, he's with them. This idea gets some confirmation in the verses that follow. Cleopas and his friend, they go up, they return to Jerusalem, and they're trying to find people to tell about it, okay? There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, Cleopas and his friend don't get a chance to tell their story because other people are already telling their stories. It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. We don't get the story of when Jesus appeared to Simon in, this gospel, in the Gospel of Luke. We just hear that it happened. It's told from the story of, uh, from the perspective of Cleopas and his friend. So Cleopas and his friend are going and they're saying, Jesus was with us, Jesus was with us. And then they discover that during the same time, Jesus was with others too. Again, Jesus is teaching them by his appearing and disappearing that he's present with them even when he's not seen. He's present with them when they gather together as believers as well because that's exactly what happens in the next story. They're all together and then bang, Jesus appears and says, peace be with you. Again, the lesson is that Jesus is no longer limited to visible presence with his disciples. In all of this, Jesus is transforming the way that these disciples relate to him in love. Jesus is transforming his disciples by showing them that, when he's truly, that he is truly present when they think he's absent. He's helping them to see his presence with them in Scripture and how it sets their heart aflame his presence with them as they gather together, his presence with them in their very hearts, wherever they go, wherever they're walking. Jesus' indirect approach, which might at first glance seem like cruel trickery, is actually giving the disciples a guided experience of the reality that he is now present to them in this brand new way, in his resurrection body. It's unbelievable. If he chose a direct approach, he couldn't have done it in precisely that way. His goal is to transform them in love and to bring them along in his kingdom mission, to empower them uh, for the work that he has before them. So what about us? How do we respond in faith and trust in our own struggles to recognize Jesus with us? I think we can relate a lot to Cleopas and his friend and their inability to recognize Jesus. At least I certainly can relate. The more that I think about it, the more I become convinced that this struggle to recognize Jesus' presence, God's presence with us in our daily lives is the fight of the Christian life. It's a daily fight for me in my own life to see the world and the people around me and the things that I do with the eyes of faith. 
And I often fail to recognize Christ's presence with me because I'm too absorbed with busyness or with fear, or I only see my own, own needs, or I just go through the day so that I can get to the end of it. And yet when I'm able to catch glimpses of Jesus with me in my life, it changes the way that I live. I can work and serve out of a deep sense of God's love for me and a desire to share it with others. I can persevere in difficulty because I know it's Jesus who loves me, is at work in me and around me, even though I can't always see it. Life becomes an adventure rather than, than just something to endure. So where in your own life do you long, like Cleopas and his friend, to be able to recognize Christ with you? Where it seems like he's absent. Is it in your studies? Maybe you want to learn how to study for the joy of learning rather than studying out of fear of failure. Is it in your work? Perhaps you want to learn how to manage the tasks before you each day with love for those that you're serving rather than out of an anger or frustration-driven desire to just be done with it. Is it in your pain? Rather than escaping from your pain to the distraction of your choice, friends, Netflix, video games, keeping busy, whatever, do you long to be able to finally face your pain and know God's healing in the presence of Jesus? What do you long for? Is it in your friendships? Maybe there's a part of you that wants to go beyond surface-level friendships that are based on having as much fun as possible together to something deeper. Do you long to actually live a whole human life of love in which you can be in the present moment without fear, that you can experience joy rather than feeling like life is just a matter of hobbling from one temporary source of comfort to the next. Every Christian has this gift that was given to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They have, every Christian has, all of you have, a burning heart longing for God. No matter how deeply buried it is, it's there. When you find yourself longing for these things, longing for the gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you find yourself longing for God's presence, pay attention. This isn't just you making stuff up. This is Jesus Christ in your heart, the Son of Man, Lord of the universe, calling you to Him. Respond by asking God to fan this flame in you, to help you see Him. Respond as well by clearing space so that, you, so that God can deepen this work in you. Clear out daily, unhurried time with God, which you can, so you can practice the things that Cleopas and his friend practiced, which were talking with God and reading Scripture with him at your side, listening to how he wants to direct your attention to a particular uh, passage, whatever he wants you to see. Respond by seeking out friendships with your brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you learn to recognize God. In those areas of your life that you long to see God, take up a practice that will short-circuit your habits of keeping your eyes shut to God. I have many of those habits. I'm sure all of us have different habits that keep our eyes shut. Uh, And think about that. Think about where do you long to see God at work and how can you change the habits that, that, that make you want to avoid? If you long to see God in your friendship with that person that you find really annoying... Rather than avoiding them, make it a habit to ask them regularly how they're doing and see how God builds a love for this person out of who they truly are, which is an image bearer of God, loved by him. 
If you long to be less distracted by what is new and entertaining on the internet, constantly looking at your phone, put your phone down. Fast from it, your devices. I'm going to close now by reading another passage of Scripture that helps us see Jesus for who he is as the Son of Man, this fulfillment of a visual representation of who he is. Rather than just a no-name somebody off the street, Jesus is the somebody. He's the Son of Man, the living Lord of the universe, present in our midst. He's present right here, right now. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just pretend. It's real. The person that we're about to think about and see in our mind's eye, in our imagination, is actually here and present and walking with us each moment of the day. He goes with us as we leave. Think about that. Ponder on that. After I read this passage, we're dismissed. Though, please do feel free to stick around for a bit to pray or talk with others. May we all recognize the presence of Jesus Christ with us speaking with us, calling us to him. Here's our passage. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, And said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. Amen.